Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey friends, thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Here we go here on the Bill Press Show. It is a Thursday, Thursday, February 1. Hello, everybody. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us here, the Bill Press Show. Back with you. Thanks to Jason Dick for filling in yesterday. We are here in our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where Republicans are out of town down in Greenbrier, Greenbrier, West Virginia, on their retreat after a horrible accident on the way down there yesterday. Uh, but the swirl of comments about the State of the Union and reaction to the State of the Union continues. And, of course, the big flap now is over this memo prepared by uh, Devin Nunez, the discredited former chair, or, well, chair, but recused on the Russian investigation on the uh, from the House Intelligence Committee, and Donald Trump vowing he's going to release this memo. His director, the man he appointed to head the FBI, is saying, don't you dare because we have grave concerns. It could jeopardize national security. How that plays out is one of the big things we'll be talking about today and look forward to hearing from you Yes, uh, you and I haven't had a chance to talk about the State of the Union. Uh, give us your comments uh, about the State of the Union or about this memo. And uh, will Donald Trump fire his guy now at the FBI just the same way he fired James Comey? Again, the Bill Press Show, you know how to jump in. Jump in with your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. And we got lots to talk about with a great lineup of guests today. We'll get right into it. But first. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, we saw there was, uh, during the inauguration, Michelle Obama and Barack Obama were handing over uh, power to the Trumps. And Melania Trump sort of infamously gave Michelle Obama a Tiffany box. You remember this? There was an awkward exchange of a Tiffany box. And everybody was wondering. What was, was in the Tiffany yes. box? What was in the Tiffany box? Well, uh, Michelle Obama went on Ellen DeGeneres' TV show and explained what exactly it was. First of all, she explained that like why it was so awkward because she didn't know what to do with it. She didn't know if there was any sort of uh, uh, protocol. It's not something that typically happens in yeah. that way. So she said she was confused as to what to do with it. Barack, she said, stepped in and saved the day and took the box and took it back inside and they collected it later. But what was inside? She said it was a lovely picture frame. Oh. That's a lovely picture frame. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, so very nice. A g- gift from the Trumps. Was to- it? Yeah. Was it ticking? Right, yeah. right. Well, when, they, when she said it was a picture frame, I just assumed it was a framed picture of Donald Trump. Oh, of course. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that would be something that he would give, <laughs> of course. Uh, by the way, yesterday... 
At this time, I had the story that FEMA said that it was going to end the food and water distribution in Puerto Rico, that they were done. It was over. Apparently, uh, they had been in. Because Puerto Rico is all fixed. Clearly. uh, Yes, forget about it. Besides, it's an island. (laughs) Surrounded by water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ocean water. Turtles that bite. Big water. Uh, so there, there's this whole issue. They were still trying to have this conversation with FEMA. Puerto Rico was like, we still need help. And FEMA was saying, no, we're, we're out of here. We're done. Well, yesterday they reversed it. They said they will not end food and water distribution. They will continue to give food and water to Puerto Rico, uh, which I think is probably smart for them because the optics of that is not very good. No, they're the dumbasses. I mean, to say they're going to end the end any any help to Puerto Rico. Who 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 put out that statement, right? Yeah, it, it was a total mess. Uh, and finally, one other story, uh, very very quickly, Virgin Airlines. Mm-hmm. They are going to be offering what they call love suites on some oh. of their New York uh, flights out of New York. New York bound jets. They will have. Couples in mind, as their Airbus A330 planes will uh, have a special seating arrangement called the Love Suite. So I'll let you figure out what they're going to do. With Are they going to put suites. like a curtain around it? Uh, there will be some privacy. There will be a place for I, like I don't, to. No, you know what? I don't want this. Yeah, no, no. No, it's, I don't I, want this. Uh-uh. No, no. No. No, thanks. I mean, no. Mile High Club. Okay, <laughs> but not this. And here we go. What do you say on a Thursday, February 1? Uh, good to be back with you. A little time out yesterday, but thanks to Jason Dick for filling in. It is the Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. Yes, indeed. Get ready for this. Donald Trump is about to fire his second FBI director. Yes, his, the guy he appointed after he fired James Comey. It looks like Christopher Ray could be the next one to fall. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, with that news, it has Washington just absolutely buzzing today. And in fact, the entire country, because uh, this is the president who professes to be the president of law and order, who is in open warfare with his Justice Department and his FBI, which, of course, are our Justice Department and our FBI. Great to see you today on this Thursday, February 1, uh, as we come to you live from our studio right here on Washington, D.C., reaching out to you all across the great country of ours with all the news of the day, as we do. Uh, my take on the State of the Union, we haven't had a chance to talk about you and I yet, uh, also uh, talk about this uh, big uh, memo, and Robert Mueller is now, it appears, focusing in on that uh, meeting in Trump Tower in June 2016, a meeting called by Donald Trump Jr. to discuss dirt on Hillary Clinton, and yet the White House put out a statement apparently dictated by Donald Trump himself on Air Force One coming back from uh, his first trip overseas, a memo that Donald Trump dictated which said that meeting was all about adoption procedures. It was a lie to the American people. Was it also a lie to the Justice Department? Was it also obstruction of justice? Boy, 
So much to talk about to get us all through that. A great lineup of guests today. Kyle Kondik uh, from the um, University of Virginia, Center for Politics, of course, a uh, frequent guest of ours, will be here to talk about what it looks like for 2018 for Democrats and Republicans. Sabrina Siddiqui, one of our favorites and one of your favorites, frequent guest host on the show, will be here as a friend of Bill today, joined by another of our favorites, Jen Bendery, who covers Congress for HuffPost. So with all of that lineup, we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We join you on Free Speech TV nationwide and out in the greater Chicago area on the progressive voice of Chicago, WCPT in Indiana, Indiana on Indiana Talks. Yes, indeed. Let's talk about this memo. So this, you know the story. This memo, it's a four-page memo written by the still the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, although he has nothing to do with the Russian investigation. More on that in just a moment. Devin Nunez, his name is from California. Uh, this four-page memo, which alleges uh, that the FBI used phony information provided by the um, Christopher Steele, who was a former British spy hired by Fusion GPS uh, an opposition research firm uh, to do um, some research, opposition research into Donald Trump, first for anti-Trump Republicans during the primary and then later for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Christopher Steele, we know, uh, when as part of his research, saw that there were several people, including one Mr. Carter Page, who was having a lot of meetings with Russian officials and still part of the Trump operation, Christopher Steele takes this information to the FBI. Based on that and other stuff, other, other corroborating sources, including information that came from the Prime Minister of Australia, the FBI started fearing that this guy, Carter Page, might have been a spy for Russia. So they went to the FISA court uh, and got permission to put a wiretap, or at least surveillance, on Tr Carter Page. This memo by Devin Nunez alleges that that was uh, incorrect information. The FBI relied on it, and therefore the whole Russian investigation is tainted and tilted against Donald Trump. We haven't seen the memo. It hasn't been released. Apparently, that's what it says. So Devin Nunez wrote this memo, uh, showed it to uh, members of the House Intelligence Committee, and then... The House Intelligence Committee this week, as we know, voted to release this memo on the way it works. They can't release it themselves. It has to go to the White House first, and then the White House will has five days to review it. If the White House does nothing, it automatically becomes public. Uh, and this got a little uh, attention on uh, Tuesday night when the president, leaving the State of the Union address, was asked by one of the Republicans on the aisle, uh, hey, how about releasing that memo? And Donald Trump says to him, it was all caught on the mic, Donald Trump says to him, 100%. Yeah, we're going to release it, 100%. Well, meanwhile, Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, and Rod Rosenstein, who's the uh, deputy attorney general of the United States, who is in charge of the Russian investigation because Jeff Sessions recused himself, They've been down at the White House meeting with White House officials and saying, you know, 
whatever you do, don't release this memo. It's got stuff in it that could really jeopardize our national security. We, 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 we haven't had a chance. We, the Justice Department, hasn't even had a chance to review this memo. So please, when you get it, just sit on it. Don't release it. Uh, and then Donald Trump turns around and says, no, 100% we're going to release it. And John Kelly, chief of staff, uh, told reporters yesterday, yeah, we're going to release it and we're going to do it quickly. Well, they haven't yet. So in the meantime, yesterday, and this is where it really gets heated, folks, yesterday, FBI Director Christopher Wray, the FBI issued a public statement, a public statement saying that the Justice Department slash FBI have grave concerns, grave concerns over the release of this memo and that it would be a mistake to release it and it would jeopardize our national security to release it. So there's what we've got. We've got the director of the FBI appointed by Donald Trump, who is publicly asking, publicly disagreeing with the president of the United States over this memo. So where's Donald Trump going to go? Well, if you ask, first of all, I think it's pretty clear. Donald Trump sees this memo as part of his campaign to discredit Robert Mueller. Donald Trump we, we know, has no patience with Jeff Sessions, would like to get rid of Rod Rosenstein. By the way, uh, <clears throat> he asked him the other day, so, uh, hey, Rod, baby, are you on my team? What a Sounds question. a lot like obstruction to me. Yeah, are you on my team? Meaning, are you, like, 100% loyal to me no matter what happens, or are you doing your job as the Deputy Attorney General of the United States and is your main concern the rule of law? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, he does, so he doesn't like Sessions, doesn't like Rosenstein, didn't like Comey fired him, didn't like Andy McCabe, forced him out, and now he's got this problem with Christopher Ray. I mean, this is a Saturday night massacre happening right before our eyes. And so now let's go back to, and so you got Christopher Ray saying don't release it, and Donald Trump wanting to release it, a memo written by Devin Nunez. Now, let's remember, here we go back to Devin Nunez. You know what? Remember uh, what George Bush said, fool me once, can't fool me again, whatever. <laughs> he got it. He, he, he bungled it all up. But Devin Nunez has pulled the same game before. Why was he recused as head of the Russian investigation by the House Intelligence Committee? Because of this stunt about a, over a year ago where suddenly he announced that he had discovered top-secret information that some Trump campaign officials might have been caught up in FBI surveillance. He made this great big statement, and all the media went wild, went crazy. And he said, I've discovered this, and I'm going to go down to the White House and tell the White House what I found. And he did. And he went down to the White House, and then reporters grilled him, and they found out that this wasn't stuff that he had discovered. This was stuff phony stuff, that the White House had given him and said, hey, you release this to embarrass the FBI. And so he gets it from the White House. He comes up to the Hill and says, I just discovered this. I'm going to go down to the White House and tell them all about it. That's where he got it in the first place. So he's fooled, he pulled this trick before. Now he's saying, I've got all this top secret information. So reporters asked him yesterday, well, did the White House play any role in giving you this information? 
And Devin Nunez said, I'm not going to comment on that. So you know damn well they did. This is the same old trick. This is all part of a larger plot by Donald Trump and congressional Republicans to discredit Robert Mueller because they know that Robert Mueller is on their tail. He is getting closer and closer, higher and higher in the chain of command around the White House. They're afraid of it, and they're trying to do anything they can to get rid of Mueller. So this is a big standoff. And i got to tell you, between this wacky congressman from California, Devin Nunez, and the director of the FBI, that's a choice. Who are you going to believe? That's a no-brainer. Even in today's tribal times where you just sort of like yeah, and pick who you want to support, this is pretty easy. Like. Pretty easy. Yeah, and by the way, this is a guy, Christopher Ray, that was appointed by Donald Trump, right? This is no Obama leftover. No, he wasn't around there. He wasn't around there uh, at all. So, um, and I think it's a legitimate question, by the way, raised by the FBI. Why was Carter Page having all these meetings with the Russians? As Donald Trump's emissary, and that's how he—that's how he identified himself. So uh, these grave concerns issued by Christopher Ray, and that's where it stands today. Donald Trump in a in a standoff with the director of the FBI, and of course Jeff Sessions is out of the picture because he's already he's 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 recused himself. Um, don't know how this plays out, but I wouldn't be surprised if before the end of the day, before this weekend, probably tomorrow, fi- Friday, about five o'clock. Donald Trump will fire Christopher Wray, and then we will have two FBI directors in a row fired by Donald Trump. How can anybody say this guy believes in the system of justice or in an independent uh, justice department? And can we also remind ourselves of one thing? This whole, this whole, and I, I made this point um, Tuesday. What gets me about this is Russians, the Russians interfered in our election. No doubt about it. 17 intelligence agencies all tell us that. That's what we ought to be concerned about. That's what we ought to be trying to find out exactly what happened, how much impact they had, and then do whatever we can to prevent it from happening again. And instead, the Russians, or the Republicans in Congress, they're not going after, and Donald Trump, they're not going after the Russians. They're going after the FBI, the Republican part. His party is waging war on the FBI and the Justice Department. What's going on here? Uh, and as further evidence of that, by the way, as if the FBI was Hillary's friend? Do you think our memory is that short? Hillary, I think it, Lenny, Lanny Davis has a book that comes out, I think, next week. I did a blurb for the back of the book about the impact of the October 28 letter when James Comey, October 28, and the election was what, November 5, 7, whatever it was, when James Comey came out and said, we're going to reopen the Hillary Clinton investigation because of those emails we found on Anthony Weiner's computer. Lanny's book says, and by the way, I think there's a lot to it, that Hillary Clinton would be president of the United States today except for James Comey. You can make that argument. There are other factors, but that was way up there, maybe factor numero uno. Uh, so don't think of the FBI as being in Hillary's camp. Hillary, the FBI brought Hillary down. Well, she did herself by having that private server. But that long investigation, closing it, accusing her of being so sloppy and careless, James Comey, and then coming back and reopening the investigation, 
and now they're trying. They want us to believe that the FBI was all for Hillary. I mean, the, even her exoneration, right, where they came out and said, "Okay, sloppy, she, did, she didn't do anything illegal, illegal, yeah, but still completely flamed her, yeah, over yeah. as you said." The sloppy uh, behavior. And like I, I said at the time, I said, just because they said this was not illegal doesn't mean that it isn't damaging. Yeah. Right. right. Like it it still clearly had an impact. And Donald Trump took that totally. inch yeah. and, and ran a mile with it. Yeah. Totally, totally have an impact. And so, again, Republicans, instead of going after Russia, going after the FBI— and so is Donald Trump. He doesn't care what Russia... He has yet to condemn the fact that Russia meddled in our elections. He has yet to say it was wrong. Has not said that. And further evidence of how friendly he is to Russia because <laughs> I think the Russians have a lot on him. It's got to be. They've got to have stuff on him. Either financial stuff or personal stuff or golden shower stuff. <laughs> on, uh, oh God. or both or all of the above further proof of that so the congress is concerned about at least give the give the republicans credit for this and i will but they said we got to do something to russia about meddling in our election we're going to show you can't get away with that so we're going to pass some tougher sanctions on russia which they did sailed through the congress there's no, been nothing that got the kind of support in the Congress that these Russian sanctions got. In the House, the vote was 419 to 3. 419 to 3. In the Senate, the vote for these sanctions was 98 to 2. In the entire House and Senate, there were five people who voted against these Russian sanctions. So it goes down to the White House with the Congress saying we want to put these sanctions on Russia, 517 to 5, and Donald Trump said, no, I'm not going to do it because he said the threat of the sanctions is enough to make Russia change its mind and change its plans and never to do this again. Just the threat. We're not going to put the sanctions on. I mean, the entire, basically the entire Congress says we're for this. No. Donald Trump's against it because he doesn't want to do anything to piss off his buddy, Vlad. I mean, it's as simple as that. So that's where we stand today. We will see uh, what happens uh, on the memo. Um, Adam Schiff, by the way, our, our friend uh, from California, uh, who is the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, uh, he saw the Nunez memo. Democrats have had a chance to read it. And he wrote a 10-page rebuttal, which, of course, the House Republicans have said they will not release. So they want to release their memo. They don't want to release the Democratic response or the Democratic rebuttal. And, of course, the White House won't release this either. i got to tell you, I am, I am convinced that if the White House releases this memo over the objections of Christopher Wray, uh, that um, Adam Schiff will himself release that Democratic memo, and he should, just like Dianne Feinstein released the uh, the, the transcript uh, of the testimony, I forget now who it was, in the, uh, uh, in, in, in the Senate. Uh, you can't let the Republicans... Uh, they say they're for transparency. That's why they want the memo out. 
all right, if you're for transparency, you put out both. Let's get the whole thing out. Yeah, put out both. It's like you said the other day, play hardball. Absolutely. They're going at this thing in some weird way. The Republicans are going at this thing in some weird way that it's clearly partisan. Play a little hardball back. Yeah, right. Absolutely. If they're going to do this, do it right back. Hey, by the way, there was a speech Tuesday night. I don't know whether you watched it. Uh, I got to tell you my take on that, on the State of the Union speech. I've watched a lot of State of the Union speeches, okay? I mean, I remember, I think the first one when I was doing television in, on KABC TV in Los Angeles, sitting on the set, watching the speech, and then responding. So it goes back to who was that Ronald Reagan in those days. I got to tell you, I've never seen a worse. And I've seen a lot of bad ones, too. Jimmy Carter's speeches were terrible, you know. Uh, George Bush, there's never been as bad a one as it was last night. The third longest, I mean, Tuesday night, the third longest ever, you know. Uh, and I want to go back to the days of George Washington. His entire speech was 1,700 words, I think, I read somewhere. It probably took him five minutes to read it, right? Now that's that's. Can we go back to those days? That was a lot simpler, Please. right? Yeah, but uh, you know, first of all, just overall, let's be honest. We we don't have a State of the Union speech anymore. It's supposed to be a report from the executive of the of the country to the American people as to what's going on, where we are, and what our priorities are. And what are the problems we face and what are the challenges we face? Instead, State of the Union speech has become, and we saw this Tuesday night, a, a campaign rally. It's a big political speech. It's, you know what, it's like, it's like the political, the national convention where you have all the Republicans sitting there and you get the party leaders up and they just put out their propaganda. And in this, in this case... The form is a little different because the Democrats have to sit there and listen to it, and Amer- and we have to. It's 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 just like we saw out of where was it Cleveland the, the convention yeah, this the year the Republican convention. Yeah. I was having a conversation with one of my kids about this because I said, "Why do we even have the state of the union?" I said all that you said. It just sort yeah. of like yeah. lay out this vision, but also uh, it puts the president on the record of saying, "This is what I believe. This these are what my goals are." This is where I would like to see my administration go in the yeah. coming year. Yeah. And the thing is, none of that matters anymore. No, no. no. None of that matters. No. And, and, and like, I think uh, in the bigger picture it doesn't really matter anymore. But also when it's Donald Trump is the guy giving the speech, yeah. like right. he can literally come out and say the exact opposite of what he did on Tuesday night today. And will. And, and, and will. And uh, of course, and definitely will. And, and it doesn't matter. No, no. Uh, no, that's my bottom line. So, so first of all, it's not a State of the Union speech. Let's just be honest. And the media, we play this game. I mean, all the anchors come down from New York to Washington as if it's a BFD. It's not. It's a, it's a partisan. By the way, Democrats do the same thing. Not as bad as Donald Trump. Not as outrageous. But it's a partisan political show. Number two. I am sick, okay, I know, here I'm going to get a lot of crap for this, but I am sick and tired of these guests in the, up, up in the gallery. I mean, there's never been as many as there were this year. And each, each of them is a, is a beautiful story, and they're great Americans. But you know what? I, I, I have no patience for it. They let themselves be used. They let themselves be exploited by Donald Trump, who doesn't give a rat's ass about them, to tell the truth. He's just using them. And, by the way, it's sucked up probably 
I'd say 45 minutes of time. I didn't time it out. But, you know, it's like if there were if those guests were not in the in the gallery, there would not have been a, a State of the Union speech. That was his whole speech, introducing people one after the other, after the other, after the other, all programmed and planned ahead of time, of course. You know, I mean, stick to the script, stick to the business of the country um, and, you know, have your TV show somewhere else. But but don't make it the State of the Union. And, Peter, to your point also, the other thing, people say, what does the State of the Union mean? Absolutely nothing. That State of the Union meant absolutely nothing. So I went back. I think I talked about this a little bit Tuesday. You know, I went back to, so, well, why it means nothing. Here, here's my take on it. Okay. There are two Donald Trumps. There's not one Donald Trump. Well, at least there are probably more than two. But there are at least two. There's the teleprompter Trump and the tweet Trump. Okay. We saw the teleprompter Trump Tuesday night. He's the Trump they roll out. Every once in a while, when they know they have to keep him, try to keep him on script. So they did that at Davos. They did that Tuesday night. They did that a year ago, February 28, 2017. And so the teleprompter Trump sticks on message, stays to the script, basically delivers what he's supposed to deliver. And then everybody says, oh, it's so statesmanlike. It's so presidential. B.S. I mean, come on. He doesn't. Bar. He doesn't mean a word of it, which was proven, as I pointed out earlier, when he's walking out of the chamber and he says, oh, release that memo. Unity? B.S. Unity. I don't want unity. Release that memo. 100%, babe. Well, he's right back to tweet Trump as opposed to teleprompter Trump. It's like yeah. everybody gave Nancy Pelosi and the Black Caucus particularly a lot of grief. For not standing for up not and standing cheering. up and clapping when he talked about bipartisanship. Yeah. Do you, does anybody, does anybody believe no. that he's right. going to actually chart this course of brave bipartisanship. Now, no. I got I got that. I was on CNN yesterday in New York, and I got that that comment. But sorry, why didn't the Democrats stand up and cheer for when why he talks about national unity? Why didn't he stand up and, and cheer when he talked about the national anthem? And I said, you know why? Because they don't believe that crap. They don't believe a word that he says. They know him. They don't trust him. And I said, by the way, his comment about the national anthem, that wasn't about the flag. That was about the NFL players that he called sons of bitches at that rally. That's right. And and that was a racist slur, just the same thing with the line like, oh, I'm a dreamer too. <laughs> yeah, putting down the dreamers, you know. But no, I, I applaud the Democrats for not standing up and, and endorsing. They're kind of uh, just playing for the crowd and, and utterly racist slurs. So at any rate, you got that bottom line is that the State of the Union means absolutely nothing. And if you look back at his speech, first speech, February 28, 2017, he promised a pathway to citizenship for millions and millions of immigrants. He never delivered. He promised a trillion dollars for infrastructure. He never delivered. He promised the time for trivial fights is behind us. That was over a year ago. <laughs> Think about all the people he's had trivial fights with on Twitter since then. No. The, the problem is, we're stuck with uh, Tweet Trump uh, and his divisive rhetoric and his uh, bizarre behavior uh, and his political extremism. Uh, and uh, that's and Tweet Trump is the guy that uh, is going to he's he's back in charge. Today. That's the real Trump. That's the real Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Forget about it. Uh, I hate to dump on the, such a proud 
institution as a State of the Union address, but I think we might as well just cancel them from now on. All right, we'll get back into 2018. It all, by the way, it all leads into 2018. And you know, the White House, in crafting that speech, was thinking about how it might help Republicans in 2018. We'll, let, we'll find out from Kyle Kondik, who uh, is down for the University of Virginia Center for Politics, our good friend. We'll have a quick break, and we'll be right back. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. How about it? Thursday, February 1. Uh, here we go, folks. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us at the Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from our nation's capital and our studio on Capitol Hill. Brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters. There's great men and women of our firefighting departments. We all know them, trust them, and they are on the job protecting American families every single hour of the day under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger. Check out their website at iaff.org. Be amazed at all the good things that they are up to. Yes, we are uh, no longer looking forward to 2018. We're in it. Uh, And it won't be long before we're right in the middle of the midterm elections. Kyle Kondik tracks all this for the Center for American Politics down at the University of... Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Hey, Kyle. Good to see you. How are you doing? Doing well. All right. Um, what, certainly, the everybody was looking at the State of the Union for uh, how it might help Republicans or help Democrats, right? Uh, what, what? How would you assess the impact? Uh, it's interesting that there were, you know, those snap polls come out the night, you know, yeah, the night of. Yeah. And, and by the way, they're and, always pretty positive, aren't they? they yeah, that's the point I was going to make. Is, oh. is CNN actually included its twenty-year history of of the polls they had done, and they yeah. were always positive because what happens is that. Um, the electorate is always skewed toward, or it's not the viewership is always skewed toward the, the the president, and so you would expect members of the president's party to have a positive outlook on his on his performance, yeah. and that's yeah. what happened with Trump. But it happened, you know, you go back and look at, uh, you know, Obama in 2010, he had great numbers for that, and you know, the Democrats did did poorly in the midterm. So I don't think it really means all that much. And you know, we were just talking before we came on on before the after the, during the break. Um, that you know, there's just so much stuff happening on a day-to-day basis that um, I think the speech is probably going to be forgotten in a couple of days. Uh, right. Even though I did think, um, and you know, I'm sure you've you've gone over this the, the speech at, at length, you know, yesterday and, and what have you. But um, uh, you know, I thought the, the the tone on immigration was very hard-edged, uh, and I don't, I almost felt like it was sort of poisoning the well. I, I don't. I have a hard time seeing how they get something done on immigration just because the, part, the, the, the parties are so far apart on it. The problem, one of the problems is, uh, is that Donald Trump cannot talk about immigration without branding immigrants as criminals, rapists, and murderers. Yeah. So for him, and, and we know that's how he started his campaign, um, the famous uh, lobby of Trump Tower speech when he announced uh, but even in the State of the Union, when he was talking about immigrants, he was talking about MS-13. That was his right. whole focus, right? Now, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, get rid of the MS-13 as far as I'm concerned, whatever. Uh, no sympathy for them, but um, not all immigrants are members of MS-13, yeah. and not all MS-13 members are here illegally. Right. And by the way, you know, there are a lot more people every day killed in the streets of Chicago by gangs, teen gangs. I mean, it, but for him, immigrant equals crime. Right. And it's this sort of uh, 
basically kind of nasty nativist uh, sentiment that I think he's expressed for for a long doesn't, time here. Doesn't and, help bring people together. No, and yeah, I remember I, was, I I went back and looked at some of the the pre-speech expectations after you know after the fact, and I saw a quote from Jeff Flake, of course, a retiring Arizona senator who is one of the Republicans who I think legitimately wants to get some sort of deal done on immigration. And he was talking about how he was going to measure the speech based on whether Trump's Trump spoke sort of from the heart, like he said, you know, basically said sort of conciliatory things about dreamers. Yeah. And boy, he did not. No. Um, and so based on that expectation, you know, this was, uh, again, uh, I, I, hard edge as I've been describing. And I've had this debate with conservative friends, but the, the phrase Americans are dreamers, too was not meant in a positive sense. No. no. It no. was a and, put down of dreamers. And, and you and, cannot And if you look at if you look at the rhetoric that's used toward uh the dreamers uh um by I think by by Trump and also by Republicans, I mean again I think it's I think it's pretty hard edged. I mean, you know, that's that's where we're at in this in this uh debate, but sort of asking Trump to preside over some sort of path to citizenship for the the dreamers. It's. I mean, it's almost like a you know, Nixon, only Nixon could go to China sort of yeah, moment. Uh, right. And I, I don't. I just don't know if it's going to happen or not. By the way, on the numbers you started there, and I, I, I just checked. I saw this in the New York Times earlier. Um, there were forty-five point six. Donald Trump said ahead of time that we would ha- he would have the largest audience. Well, he tweeted this morning that he did too, but of course it wasn't true. Not true. Yeah. No. I, oh, he tweeted it. This yeah, morning. he said he, he said ahead said of time he said, he'd have the biggest audience ever. Yeah. Yeah, that's not it's not true. So actually, the numbers are just that facts do matter. By the way, there's some of us who still believe that facts do matter. Uh, so 45.6 million people. By the way, that's a huge audience. This is a huge audience. Yeah. Right. It's two million fewer than watched. Uh, if, rounded to 46, 48 million people watched his first address to a joint session of Congress, yeah. and 48 million people watched Barack Obama's first State of the Union. So uh, it's still good, but for, yeah, the you, fact is, and you could, you, it was, and I'm not, it, I'm only mentioning it because no, it's he, a pro, it's a it's a great audience, particularly in a, in a yeah. time of uh, of uh, very splintered media. Although of course, you know, everybody shows it or, or all the the, the big right. networks and cable. By the way, those but, are just TV numbers, but, not. Streaming them. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is that um, you, you, just talking about sort of a partisan audience, you know, Fox Fox News had a way bigger audience for this than, yeah. than MSNBC. 11 and, and, a half million. and, you know, Fox gets really good ratings, too. But, I mean, that just shows that the, the sort of disparity in it. And, that you know, that was true for Obama, too. Right. All right. So here we are. We're in 2018. Um, is there a path for, as some people say, for Democrats to take back the house. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that I think overall that the house is about 50-50 to flip at this point. Really? Um many others are, are actually more more bullish on that I than know. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm just not ready to go that far. I think that, you know, it, it, there are um that you know the the, the seat by seat path is kind of it's kind of challenging and I, I I sort of went through that in our crystal ball newsletter this morning. Right. Just try tried to find roughly 25 seats to flip. And I mean they're they're there. Uh it's That's just the you know, number 24, 25. So the, the, the actual number is 24, but that is Assumes the Democrats don't lose any of their own seats, which oh. you know usually even in a good year you lose you lose something um, that that you already hold. So I went through it assuming they needed to, to net to, to win twenty five Republican held seats, and what I came up with was that basically half the seats would come from probably California and then the Northeast, so like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. 
and also that um, roughly, as I put it, about an equal number of the seats would probably have to come from Clinton won districts. There are 23 of those overall. Clinton won districts held so, by Republicans. So 25 seats they'd have to pick up that are now held by Republicans. Yes. And how many how many seats are there that Hillary won? Uh, 23. 23. There are 23 Republicans who sit in Clinton won seats, and then there are 12 Democrats who sit in Trump won seats. And, uh, you know, so, so it's going to be, you know, there, like, for instance, there's a bunch of seats in, in California that went f- that flipped from Romney to Clinton. Those mm-hmm. are obvious targets, uh, and some of them are among the best targets for Democrats, like Daryl Issa retired in, yeah. in Southern yeah. California. Yeah. Yeah. That's a seat that Clinton won. That's a seat the Democrats should win. But you know, then there's then there are a few in Texas that are that are sort of Clinton won seats. There are a few in New Jersey. There are, you know a few in some other places. But then there are also some seats where Obama might have won the seat, but then Trump won it, and those are still have to be targets too. Uh, now I forget the exact number, but the average this is a first midterm mm-hmm. of this new administration. Um, the party in power usually loses. Seats in That's the right. midterm, an average of about thirty so, three, thirty five. So the like that. the the post in in since the Civil War, which is basically the entire history of our two party system, because yeah, the, yeah. you know Democrats Republicans emerged as the two parties by eighteen fifty six. Um, you have thirty nine midterms since then. In thirty six of them, the president's party has lost ground in the House, and the average loss is thirty three seats. Thirty three. Yeah. yeah, and so by that metric, um, you know. Democrats would just have to perform below the average to do it. Now, um, you know, some of the biggest years for for seat switches are like in the 1890s, which is, you know, just a totally different kind of era, um, both in the way we voted and, you know, women couldn't even vote back then. I mean, it's just different. So if the average loss for the party in power is 33 and Democrats only need to pick up 25, why do you only rate their chances 50-50? Because of the specific map, because I'm also leery of sort of going out on a limb nine months before the election. Like, I just, I, you know, I could see the scenario where the Republicans sort of kind of slowly gain in a little bit of strength. You know, the generic ballot contracts a little bit. The Democrats have been consistently leading, but but it's actually contracted a little bit lately. Um, Trump's approval may be going from, you know, 40 to 43 or something. And then, you, you know, it might be that the, the Republicans only lose like 15 seats or 20 seats, and then that's not good enough. So I'm I'm being cautious. You know, if I had to pick it today, I'd probably pick the Democrats to win the House. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to lean into that too much. Uh, could it also be that the Democrats are well known for not being able to organize a two-car funeral? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's I think that's that right. Democrats could blow it. Yeah. And, and you know, also, on one hand, the Democrats have like a historically large number of candidates running in districts all across the country. But and so that's good. But, you know, a lot of these folks are unproven. They're you know, they're people who haven't well, been elected before and they may have, you know, dirty laundry that can come out. Uh, and they're also going to be very competitive primaries. Are the Democrats doing what they need to do? Meaning, do they have are they raising the money? Well, let's start. Do they have candidates in all of these districts? Good in, candidates in, in almost every district. They have candidates who appear credible on paper. Right. Not all, all right. of them, but most of them. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh, yeah. For, as a Democrat, and are they raising the money? Do they have the resources? And yeah, um, we're uh, just yesterday was the the uh, filing deadline for the uh, Q four quarter fourth quarter fundraising reports. So some of those have already come out, but. Um, I want to take a closer look at those, but the Democrats have been raising good money. In fact, there have been many Democratic candidates who have been outraising their Republican, um, uh, you know, incumbents, which is which is really pretty good. Right. 
And there have been a lot of retirements. Uh, Peter's favorite member of Congress, uh, Trey Gowdy. Yes, from my home state. From your home, his home <laughs> state of South Carolina. By the way, I, I, I don't like to get into personal appearances, but he still <laughs> is the weirdest looking person I have ever seen. I He's think. had several interesting Outside of haircuts. a circus. He's had several interesting yeah. haircuts. And a head. He's got a head. I, I, I feel sorry for any barber that tries to cut his hair. There's no way you This can... is why I just play it safe, you know. <laughs> there you if go. Those watching <laughs> on video can, can yeah, see, yeah. 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 yeah there's no um, way to screw that up, Kyle. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, Gowdy, that, but that's a Republican yeah, so, red seat. Red so, as of right now, um, based on the way we calculated... There have been a lot of retirements. There have been a ton, yeah. So, there are, there are um, as of this point, there are going to be 50 House seats that do not have an incumbent on the ballot um, this year. That does not include um, there. There are going to be three special elections in Republican held seats, including one in Pennsylvania coming up next month. I don't include that in the fifty because that district will have an incumbent on the ballot in November. So wait a minute; these are fifty seats, Republican seats. No, fifty, 50 overall that don't have an incumbent, and thirty-four of them are held by Republicans. So two-thirds are sixteen are Democratic. Now, most of those seats are not competitive in a general election sense. Gowdy's seat, uh, Trump won that that seat by I think more than thirty points. Um, uh, or it was 25 to 30, I don't remember specifically, but that's not really a, 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 a real target. Um, there was another retirement yesterday, Bob Brady, of the sort of the, the Democratic boss of Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, he decided yeah. to retire. His district is a zillion points Democratic, although um, Pennsylvania may have a new House map, so who knows. But um, but of those 50, you'd probably expect the Democrats to, to try to net at least a half a dozen seats from that group, just group of the, just the open seats. And open seats are, you know, very important because yeah. they're just easy, easier to win. Uh, and there are a number of Clinton no. won open, you know, Republican seats. And those almost always flip in this sort of midterm environment. All right. I haven't done um, the analysis, but it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, just seems that there have been more Republican retirements announced recently than Democratic. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, and, and look, I mean, obviously the Republicans have- And if have, so, why? Well- They're in power. Do you so think they want to stay? There are a number of factors. I think the midterm environment is part of it. You have a lot of senior members who basically have come from safe seats that aren't really safe anymore. Like Rod Freudikas. Freilinghaus is a great example. In, in New um, Jersey. In, you know, he was, he. I don't think he'd really ever had a hard race, uh, and he was in for one this time, uh, regardless. And also, the Republicans have uh, term limits for their committee chairman. And a number of the committee chairmen are leaving because they're going to lose their term. They were going to lose their chairmanship or they just lost their chairmanship. Frailing is an, an interesting uh, counterpoint. Appro- appropriations. Be, and he it. just he just took that. So he you know, he, yeah. he would have a few more terms to be uh, to be the chairman. And so, you know, I would th- I mean, a lot of these members, I mean, not all of them are sharp, but a lot of them are very sharp and they're very politically savvy because they have to be. And, you know, they may have a sense as to which way the wind is blowing. And, you know, they either. Don't want to go back to just being a rank-and-file member after having a high-profile chairmanship, or even worse, they don't want to be a rank-and-file member in the minority, which is not a lot of fun in the House. Uh, You mentioned this earlier in passing. I'm going to come back to the fact that California could really provide the kind of the rocket, you know, that that sends the Democrats over the top. If you look just at Orange County, California, a territory I know, being former Democratic chair of California, um, so Darrell Issa stepping down. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a seat Democrats really should pick. Ed Royce yep. stepping down, Orange County. Dana Rohrabacher clearly will have the fight of his life, I think, yep. this year, mm-hmm. right? Um, not even, not all conservatives like Dana Rohrabacher's right. style of conservatism. Is, and 
Uh, there's another a woman. M- Mimi, Walters Mimi Walters is another Orange County seat. Like the most one of the most vulnerable of all the Republican so seats. If the, Democrats pick up even three, but four seats out of Orange County, California, I mean, yeah. Katie, bar the door. Well, so the Democrats already control 39 of 53 seats in California. And yet they probably need several more to make the math work nationally. Now, two of them, I think, are not necessarily easy pickups, but but seats that they're, they're probably better than 50-50 to win. And those are um, the, the ISA and Rice seats that are now open. And then there is a group of five more incumbents who are vulnerable to certain degrees. You mentioned some of them, Dana Rohrabacher, Mimi Walters, uh, David Valadeo, who represents a uh, kind of rural majority Hispanic uh, district, Jeff Denham, who is a battleground seat in, in uh, near Sacramento, um, and uh, I'm I'm blanking on the other one, but Devin Nunez, his his seats his seats more Republican, although he he may also he probably will have a, a you know a real challenger, but um, the the Democrats. I, I, the way I sketched it out in my my sort of roadmap this morning is I thought the Democrats needed to net five more seats out of California. Hmm. So two would be those open ones probably, and then a combination of beating some incumbents, which you know I think is plausible. But you know some of the, as, as you well know, I mean Orange County is almost sort of the 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 oh. uh, the, the um. Uh, where where modern conservatism sort of came from, Absolutely. really, yeah. And uh, Clinton yeah. was the first Democrat to win Orange County since FDR in '36. Um, so you know the, the what some Republicans in California and neutral observers believe too is that the Clinton numbers in those districts do not represent the actual down ballot Republican strength. Um, I think well, I personally think the Clinton numbers are a leading indicator, and that a lot of those members are in trouble. But we'll see. We uh, had our first victory in in in, Cal- in Orange County. Uh, we used to call it going behind the orange curtain <laughs> uh, and with. Um, Loretta Sanchez, when she beat B1 Bob Dorner, yeah. Dornan, and then, uh, of course, her sister was later elected to Congress. And um, Let's talk uh, – so the other number about the House. When – in 2010, when John Boehner won, or when Republicans won and John Boehner became Speaker, Republicans won – so that was Barack Obama's first yeah. midterm. 63 net seats. Exactly. 63. So, I mean, 25 – not that crazy. Certainly not that crazy. Not no, that historically. crazy. Yeah. Um, the the one thing about the Democrats in in um in twenty ten was Boehner landslide sixty three. The the Democrats were way overextended. You know they they had going into twenty ten they controlled the majority of the seats in Tennessee. They had a, they had three of the four seats in Mississippi. They had seats in you know dark red Alabama, Arkansas. Um, you know the the Republicans are not that. Exposed, and that's why you know the Democrats yeah. picked up thirty in two thousand six. I think that's like a pretty reasonable goal, and I certainly think I can get that. In fact, if the wave is big enough, it could be more like forty or forty five, but it could also be fifteen, <laughs> which is why I'm you know yeah, I, and I'd be oh. I'd be surprised if it wasn't double digits anyway. Right. So we have to take a look at the Senate. If you're fifty fifty in the House, what are you in the Senate? Less than fifty fifty in the Senate because the Senate map is so difficult for Democrats. Um, but they've had some breaks, right? They've had def- Doug Jones is a break. Right? Doug, the, Doug, is, is Doug Jones up again this year? No. Okay. Uh, he is. So he, he's a, yeah. he gets to serve three years, and he's up in twenty twenty, which will be a very hard seat to keep. But at least it's banked for Democrats now. Um, so the Senate's fifty one forty nine. Right. They got a uh, break yesterday in the sense uh, the Justice Department. Um, two weeks after they said we're going to go back after Robert Menendez, yesterday they said we're dropping all charges. Yeah, 
Um, certainly in, you know, New Jersey's a, seat, a state you'd expect to elect a Democrat to the Senate in this kind of environment. So he should he should be fine despite his uh, despite his baggage. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some of these other Democratic incumbents um, from states that Trump won, I think, are actually in, in better shape now. Bob Casey in Pennsylvania looks pretty good. His Republican opponent, Lou Barletta, who's a congressman, has had a lot of problems and isn't really raising money. Debbie Stabenow does not have a credible challenger in Michigan as of now. Um, so the, the the field is some of the, I think the Democrats are going to be able to take some of these seats sort of off the board. I think maybe the two seats in Minnesota two look pretty good for them to hold. Amy Klobuchar is probably going to win by a zillion points, and uh, Tina Smith, the new incumbent who replaced Al, Al Franken, is she running? She's on the ballot. Yeah, so she she said she wasn't going to run. No, she she um, part of the reason oh. she uh, got the appointment was they twisted her arm so that she would run again. But uh, Minnesota seems like it'll be pretty good for the Democrats this time. So, you know, there's still a lot of seats to defend, but it's not like double digits that are really at risk. It's so funny. Like, I'm old enough to remember the Barack Obama midterms where there had there were uh, Democrats who were too scared to run with him because his approval rating was a shockingly low 49 percent. Yeah. And yeah. so now you've got these Republicans who are going to figure out how they're going to run with a head of their party right. that is at a historic Low. Well, let me let me make this point too. So so you know, well, let's assume that Trump's approval rating nationally is forty percent, or you know, give give or take. That's what the averages say. Um, if you go but if you go state by state, and actually Gallup just put out some state by state approval numbers uh, for the president, the president is you know underwater in approval in almost every state, or probably 85 percent of the states, including some states that voted for him heavily, like. You know, Ohio, for instance, Trump won it by eight points. His approval was minus five in Ohio. Um, even in like Missouri and Indiana, which are states that um, have become pretty Republican, Trump's approval is underwater there too. And so, in a lot in a lot of these states, um, even even states that Trump won by a lot, his approval is bad. And what Republicans are going to have to do is convince probably at least some people who disapprove of Trump to vote against their incumbent Democratic senator. That. That seems like a hard task in in a mid in a midterm environment. Uh -huh. So uh, the ones that you, we hear that could be in trouble, the ones the red state Democrats, we always have to look the other way because we know they have to vote for you know, <laughs> things. Uh, Claire McCaskill, yep, Joe Donnelly, Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, John, John Tester, Tester yeah. right? They're the five. Uh, are any of them in serious trouble? I I think McCaskill is um, really, but her um, seems the strongest of the. Um, to me, but she, you know, she's probably the most liberal of the five, and so probably the, the the poorest fit for her state. But she's also benefited, you know, she benefited from Todd Akin in 2012. Oh, yeah, and yeah. she's probably going to face the state attorney general, this younger guy named Josh Hawley, who um, actually didn't raise that much money last. I mean, it was under a million dollars, which actually isn't that good for a Senate quarter. And he also made he, he was in some dust up yesterday talking about how. You know, human trafficking was basically caused by the sexual revolution of the 1960s, um, uh, which is not is uh, it certainly is not what Aiken said, but yeah. is the kind of sort of I hot know, button cultural of, thing yeah, that yeah. that um, you know can Idiot. maybe people raise their eyebrows at. So, um, and Democrats got a break in Tennessee. Yeah, the with, former governor Phil Bredesen is running. That's a really tough state for them, but um, at least it sort of puts it on the board. It's an open seat. Bob Corker retired. I think Beto O'Rourke has like kind of a puncher's chance in Texas against mm, Ted Cruz. Really? Uh, oh, no, that I mean, would be, you know, yeah. Cruz is definitely favored right, by a right. lot, but um, 
I don't think it's going to be some sort of runaway. And at the very least, O'Rourke is raising real money and, and is running a real campaign. Uh, and then you've got Arizona and Nevada, which are uh, – Arizona's an open seat. Dean mm-hmm. Heller's running in Nevada. Those are 50-50 or maybe even better to flip to the Democrats, I think. Right. So there is a path. It's just a tougher path. The Democrats have to narrow path. hold all yeah. their incumbents and then pick up two Republican seats, probably Arizona and Nevada. Okay. Hey, Kyle. My God, what a great uh, great roundup there of uh, how chances look in 2018. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Bill. Hey, Sabrina Siddiqui joins us coming up next. Stay tuned. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to The Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. He fired one FBI director, and now it looks like he's about to fire another one. What do you say, folks? It is Thursday, February 1. Here we go, The Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for climbing on board as we head out to you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. with all the news of the day. Yes, indeed. It is open warfare between the FBI and the White House, the director of the FBI, whom Donald Trump appointed, Christopher Wray, saying he has grave concerns, publicly saying grave concerns that the White House could release uh, this memo from the House in, uh, Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee. Um, but the president telling a member of Congress he's going to release it 100%. And John Kelly, chief of staff, saying... Absolutely, we're going to release it, and we're going to do so quickly. Where does this all lead? Um, well, hell, I don't know, but Sabrina Siddiqui knows. Oh, and here she is, Sabrina <laughs> Siddiqui, joining us for this entire hour as a friend of Bill. So do good I to know. see you. How are you? Good. How are you? Hi. Oh, yes, your fan club. <laughs> see? Got a lot of fans. It, it, you do, not just here in the studio, but all across America. Yes. So Sabrina is here with us, and we'll be joined by uh, Jen Bendry from HuffPost uh, at the half hour, and the three of us uh, can get in a lot of trouble together with your help as well. <laughs> and remember, we always want to hear from you, your comments on the news of the day, uh, more comments about the State of the Union, and comments about this memo and this war between the White House and the FBI. Uh, Sabrina, we jump right into it, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, we talk a lot about the legalization of marijuana on this program. Oh, do we ever. (laughs) We're the champions. After California made it legal uh, in their state, one of the things we talked about on the show is we'll see real progress when they stop start throwing out convictions for people that have already been convicted of having marijuana before it got legal. Well... 
Yesterday, prosecutors in San Francisco said they were going to do exactly that. Yep. They yep. are throwing out marijuana-related convictions of residents that date back all the way to 1975. Well, I've oh, got a wow. few of those. <laughs> I was going to say. I was going to say. Bill, are you absolved? Free at last. <laughs> Free at last. <laughs> now, they point out that in other states, you oh, have yes. been able to petition to have your record expunged, but that is a fairly costly procedure, and it takes a lot of time, and you got to pay for legal help and all that stuff. In fact, uh, the district attorney for San Francisco, a man by the name of George Gascon, yesterday said that only 23 petitions have been filed in the past year in this city. So he said one way to get rid of that, one way to help people out, get rid of all the convictions. 4,940 felony convictions uh, will be at least reduced to misdemeanors or, uh, in some cases, just completely thrown out. For the record, um, I did smoke pot for the first time in, I mean, first smoke pot in San Francisco, but yeah. I was never arrested for it. Okay, so, fair. There, I, and, and, but you you inhaled. I just want to make sure. <laughs> did I <laughs> That inhale? was the point. That was the point. <laughs> exactly. By the way, if you are driving a Toyota vehicle, a Toyota Prius, a Lexus RX, an NX uh, SUV, <laughs> Be careful because Toyota is recalling about 654,000 vehicles worldwide. They're fixing an electrical problem that could stop airbags from inflating in a crash. Uh, listen carefully. The Toyota Alford, Velfire, Sienta, Noah, Voxy, Esquire, Probox, Succeed, Corolla, Highlander, Levin, and Helix models all produced between May of 2015 and March of 2016. They say that there is an open electrical circuit. That would cause the uh, bags to not inflate in a crash. So you want to be careful there. And yeah. if you have one of those vehicles, check with your dealers. Take it by a Toyota dealership, and they'll take a look and tell you whether or not you qualify for the uh, uh, the recall or not. So, so do you know a car? Do you know a car? I don't. I didn't think you did. Uh, Peter, have you ever had a car re- recalled? I haven't. Although my car might be in this, I have to go double check when it was manufactured. Yeah. I never have either, and I'm just amazed at all these cars that are recalled. We've never driven one that we had to take back. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. It is a war between the FBI and the White House, uh, and uh, Donald Trump determined it looks like to have his way, and even if that means he has to fire another FBI director to get there. Hello, everybody. So much for the uh, unity that we heard talked about at the State of the Union Tuesday night. It's Thursday, February 1. Uh, Here we are, the Bill Press Show. Good to be with you all the way across this great land of ours, coast to coast. We're joining you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. And, of course, on Free Speech TV and out in the greater Chicago, in the Chicago area, uh, all over the greater Chicago area on WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago, and here with us in studio as a friend of Bill for this entire hour, our good friend Sabrina Siddiqui from The Guardian. So, Sabrina, good to see you. And um, Donald Trump versus Christopher Ray, right? I mean, it's right out there. This is They had private meetings at the White House where Christopher Ray and Rod Rosenstein, the deputy AG, said, don't release this memo, don't release mm-hmm. this memo. But now, yesterday, Christopher Ray went public. 
First of all, it's the president versus his own hand-picked FBI director. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in James, in the case of James Comey, uh, he had chosen to have Comey at least initially stay on. Um, I think that this is about so much more than the memo. Uh, there's obviously allegations um, that from the FBI, which are extraordinary. I mean, they have a right to defend themselves. Uh, that this is highly misleading. The contents of this memo are factually inaccurate. And perhaps jeopardize national security. And perhaps jeopardize national security. That's just at a minimum. But what this is really about is the historic independence of the FBI. And you have a president who believes that the nation's top law enforcement agency is there to serve him and him alone. Uh, And this is not... um, something that is just pertaining to the investigation into Russia, uh, but rather something that could cast the enti- the work of the entire agency in a potentially partisan light when, in fact, the, the irony here is, outside of the fact that this is a historically nonpartisan independent agency, <laughs> it does lean conservative um, when it comes to the the government agencies and and the tra- the surveys that have been done uh, that kind of give you an indicator of the overall atmosphere within within a, the agency. So Plus, that's also like a, a great deal of rich irony. Um, but all of this is to pute- a campaign to absolve the president um, in an investigation that remains ongoing and and to undercut and undermine particularly Robert Mueller. I mean, it's mm-hmm. FBI in general, but Robert Mueller and the and the Russia investigation. And yeah, just building what you said. If they really want us to believe after the 2016 campaign that the FBI was in Hillary Clinton's pocket? I mean, there are some people who make the argument, uh, I don't, but it certainly was a big factor, that she'd be president today if it weren't for James if, Comey. If it weren't for James Comey, you had the um, this, this agent, uh, Peter Strzok, who's come under scrutiny for... Um, what were purportedly uh, anti-Trump text messages. First and foremost, Robert Mueller, when he learned of these messages last July, immediately reassigned him and, and yeah. effectively removed him from the investigation, uh, the special counsel investigation. So the appropriate steps were taken when Mueller felt that there was uh, sufficient evidence to suggest that he shouldn't be serving on this in as part of this inquiry anymore. But now we've seen a revelation yesterday that the same agent... Uh, was the one who co-wrote the letter, the infamous letter on October 28th, uh, 11 days before the election, um, reopening the Clinton email investigation and, and that he supported it. So mm-hmm. so even if you know, at the end of the day, everyone has their private, their right as, as a private citizen to vote and to have whatever political views they do, no matter what part of the government they work for, it's quite clear that they do not let that cloud the work that they do. Because he he has taken uh, you know the, the effectively a, a step that the, the same agent that that many people think swung the election uh, in Trump's favor. All right, so I'm going to come back. I don't remember ever seeing anything like this where the president the president says I want to release this memo, and the FBI director publicly says, after mm-hmm. warning privately, publicly says, mm-hmm. I disagree, Mr. President. That's a mistake. I have grave concerns if you do that. So do you think Trump, first of all, do you think he'll release this memo? Is there any doubt in your mind that Trump wants this memo out because it's part of his campaign to discredit Robert Mueller? First, I think the memo is a joke, and we'll find out that it's a joke because this was written by a clown, Devin Nunez. But but do you think that, is there any doubt in your mind that Donald Trump will release this memo? 
No, no. I would say that the fact that his chief of staff, John Kelly, is out there saying yeah. uh, that this memo should be released. President Kelly. <laughs> it, the, insofar as there are people around the president who you would think would have better judgment with respect to something like this. It's yeah, one thing yeah. to say, okay, well, John Kelly has not been able to rein in the president and that um, you know he supports his hardline immigration agenda. That's all yeah. fine and well. But, but John Kelly, given his background, if there is a threat to national security, that is where you think he would... You would think. You would think that he would say. I hate to say this, but you know we what? should listen to the concerns of the FBI. Maybe we need Steve Bannon back. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Bannon said, "Don't fire James Comey. You're going to rue the day. It'll it'll blow up in your face if you fire James Comey." According to and now you wonder Michael is he Wolf. going to fire the James Comey's successor? Which well, at that point that was my it, next question. Do you think point, he would fire Christopher Ray? I don't think anything is out of the realm of possibility. Um, I also think that for all the talk about the political affiliation um, and leanings of some of the people at the FBI, although I, and I say this while underscoring that it should not matter because that is, yeah. that is yeah. not the, his, the, the tradition of the agency, but James Comey, longtime Republican, his successor, Christopher Ray, longtime Republican, uh, Robert Mueller, longtime Republican, the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, longtime Republican. So, so when they're holding up, you know, these, you know, maybe one agent that they believe uh, had some sort of antipathy toward Trump uh, or when they're scrutinizing the um, political campaign of Andrew McCabe's wife, not Andrew yeah. McCabe, his wife had every reason to be able to uh, run for office. Uh, they're doing so because that then they can try and say that this is some sort of witch hunt as led by Democrats when all of the people who are at the highest levels of uh, both the FBI and the Justice Department and in charge of this investigation are Republicans. Yeah. The only other thing I'll say is this is not one issue in isolation. You know, we heard that the president asked Rod Rosenstein if he was on his uh, team. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is part of a pattern. Yeah. He asked James Comey for his loyalty. He asked him to drop the investigation into Michael Flynn. He tried to prevent Jeff Sessions from recusing yeah. himself from the investigation. <laughs> he asked Andrew McCabe who he <laughs> voted for. Now we know he asked Rod Rosenstein. Are you if on you, my team? Are you on my team? At what point do you say that this is not just, this is in, taken in totality quite clearly an effort to impede uh, the investigation from proceeding? Yeah, we call that obstruction of justice. We call that justice. obstruction of justice. You know, legally, obviously, people will say, well, can you establish intent? And the White House is saying he doesn't know any better. But if he's being told repeatedly that you cannot do that, then, yes, he knows better. He does. He does. He does see the uh, the Justice Department and the FBI as White House counsel. Exactly. Yeah. As the attorneys that he used to fire in New York to get him out of the thousands of lawsuits he was involved in. By the way, th this relates to something that I haven't heard anybody else talk about. And, in fact, I, I haven't talked about it until this moment. Are you ready? Oh. That is a line in the State of the Union where he said, I want an executive order or I want a new law or something that enables any cabinet member to fire any employee at all any time they want to. Do, do you remember that he said that? Mm -hmm. uh, and people applaud it. And I'm thinking, what is he talking about, right? And you know what he was talking about? I want, I know what he, in his mind it was, I want to have the right to fire Robert Mueller or Rod Rosenstein or <clears throat> Christopher Ray, mm. anytime I want with no repercussions. Go back and look at that line. It was a stunning line about the, the absolute no limits at all on anybody you could fire anytime for any reason whatsoever.
and just like he did at Trump Tower. I mean, he could just and this goes back to the this, this um, idea he has that ultimately the government is there to serve him and him alone. And uh, look, of course, there are some agencies yep. that are mm-hmm. tasked uh, more so than others with carrying out an administration's agenda. Um, and so you could argue that there are some agencies that are just inherently more political in the nature of their work. But th- this is not how governance works. And you have all of these career civil servants who work at these agencies who, you know, regardless of who they, they may choose personally to work with uh, within an administration or not. But regardless of who is in office, they carry out the work that they do. Um, and so are we now going to audit every agency to see if there are people there who don't like this president? I mean, that this is the, this is the, the precedent that's set by the tone. That's being right. being espoused from the very but top. But you can see with justice, look, with Sally Yates, right, James Comey, Andy McCabe, and uh, there must have been some others there. But you know, right? those are just the ones he actually fired. Actually the ones fired. That he's tried to fire. Right, and now certainly in his sights are uh, Rod Rosenstein, Christopher Ray, uh, Robert Mueller, Robert Mueller. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. and still Jeff Sessions. Yeah. And if it were up to him, Jeff Sessions would be gone. If it were up to him, Jeff Sessions would be gone. Yeah, absolutely. So related to this, um, apparently, according to the New York Times front page today, um, Mueller with these White House or former White House staffers that he's been interviewing has been focusing on a, a statement that the White House released mm. About the famous June 2016, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower that Donald Trump Jr. called. Uh, and when the New York Times reported, was going to report on this meeting, they asked the White House for a response. It was, it was written on Air Force One coming back from Donald, Trip, Donald Trump's first foreign trip. Uh, according to Fire and Fury and other sources, um, it was written on Air Force One in the president's office. Uh, where Donald Trump was there, Hope Hicks was there, I forget who else was there. Sean Spicer and Reince Priebus were not. Yeah. They were in the back of the plane. And Donald Trump says, no, we're going to put out this statement that this meeting was about adoption. Right. Uh, we later learned, of course, it later was learned. to on the set up on the pretense of receiving damaging information, incriminating information by Hillary Clinton. And may I just point out, we learned that because Donald Trump Jr. released all the emails, and in those emails, the person said they had dirt on Hillary, and Donald Trump Jr. says, if, I love it. If it's what you say, I love it. Yeah. And so. he had to release his emails because the Times had more and more reporting to to, to suggest what the meeting was about, okay. and at that point... So this gets he, back to the question. If yeah. indeed this is true, and that's what Mueller is trying to find out, that Donald Trump lies to the New York Times, uh-huh. lies to the American public about what this meeting was all about, is that obstruction of justice? Well, I think that the fact that this is such an integral piece of the investigation... Uh, suggests that Mueller is zeroing in on obstruction of justice. And there has been a s- uh, reporting in recent weeks to suggest that um, he, the special counsel is a, is particularly focused on events uh, that have transpired since Trump took office 
um, and that includes the way that they responded to the the the, the meeting and and their their highly misleading explanation of why it occurred, but also wanting to revisit the circumstances under which James Comey was, was fired, fired and Michael Flynn. What did the president know? When did he know it? Um, you know, even with Michael Flynn, they first said it was because he misled uh, Vice President Mike Pence about the nature of his communications with the, then the Russian ambassador to the U.S. And then Trump um, then t- later tweeted it's because he lied to the FBI, mm-hmm. oh, <coughs> you're thinking, OK, hold on. So you, you, you did know. Um, and, 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 and there, then there was also, of course, James Comey, where, you know, he, the White House tried to suggest had nothing to do with Russia. Trump himself said in the interview with, uh, Lester Holt at NBC, all of the Russia thing, uh, was effectively a factor. So all of that, I think, if you're looking at those, those events, uh, do signal that the special counsel team is, is actually very seriously examining whether or not the president obstructed justice, whether all of this, uh, you know, I was saying earlier, we, we sometimes talk about these in isolation, in t- taken in totality. I mean, there is oh, yeah. there is an oh, yeah. undeniable pattern, and I think that's what the special counsel is trying to get to the bottom to. Um, and at what point, especially when you have a pattern, when if, you had, if it was one isolated incident, mm-hmm. that's where the, it would be much more difficult to prove intent. Right. But when you right. have a pattern, it becomes a lot easier to say this is quite clearly um, an effort to undermine the investigation. I, I want to circle back to this memo because uh, we talked at first a second. We talked about uh, the Donald Trump versus uh, Christopher Ray aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that this memo was written by Devin Nunez. Okay, <laughs> now do we forget Devin Nunez's history? The reason Devin Nunez is no longer in charge of the Russian investigation of the committee he's the chair of, the House Intelligence Committee, is because he pulled this stunt once before. Right. He went right? to the White House, and they don't keep visitor logs. So this was a meeting that was only revealed yeah. after people, reporters, found out about it. And get, he... Get he, some... Learn some stuff. He learned some information that he then shared publicly that was not corroborated by the intelligence community, and if I, I, frankly speaking, it was inaccurate. No, uh, and I was at the briefings <laughs> a couple of days there where Devin Nunes announces, I learned all this top-secret stuff about Trump campaign officials being picked up in FBI surveillance, right. and I'm going to go down to the White House and tell them what I discovered. Because we were asking Sean Spicer, what's he coming down Top-secret stuff. What's he coming down or what's he got? And Sean Spicer, we don't know. He's just coming down here to, to drop this bombshell. Well, it turned out he goes back. He, he takes the same stuff, which was inaccurate, as mm-hmm. you point out, that he learned at the White House, comes up to the Hill, announces it, and then goes as if he's going back to the White House to deliver the news to them about stuff that he learned there at a meeting at the White House. Exactly. So it was – and that, that's why – and he was had to recuse himself from the Russian investigation. So now he's saying, I've got top secret stuff. And when he was asked this time whether the White House any, had any role in drafting this memo or giving him the information, he refused to answer. He, and, and what does he, that tell you? He has you no know, credibility. And yeah. um, it's quite clear that his campaign to discredit the Russian investigation has been far more coordinated. Um, with the White House. With the White House. And it it's it, I think it underscores that there are Republicans not not all in Congress, but there are a faction of Republicans 
who are already covering for the president. They are trying to preempt whatever it is that Mueller finds and in the court of public opinion, um, color people's perception of the investigation so that they can dispute if Robert Mueller does come back um, with with any uh, incriminating information about Trump. They can say that, well, you know, this whole investigation was tainted. It was biased. Um, I, I, the question will be to me whether other Republicans, uh, especially those in the Senate, who have been uncomfortable, who have expressed discomfort with some of Nunes's actions, whether they're going to line up behind the president, um, you know, yeah. Republican leaders. The answer not, is yes. The answer is most likely yes. Insofar as House Speaker most Paul Ryan, yes. House Speaker most Paul Ryan has yes. defended um, Devin Nunes, and that speaks volumes. He's also defended Rosenstein, but if but if Trump, Ryan, Paul Ryan, just did, two days ago said, "I have complete confidence in Rosenstein. Yes, he should be allowed to do his job." But you know what? If Trump fires Rosenstein, if Trump fires Mueller. Paul Ryan will be the first one to fall on the sword right? for Donald Trump. Well, we saw it with Absolutely. James Comey. Yeah, yeah. James Comey was— They're all gutless. I don't think what the president did here was very helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that'll be it. Yeah. And that'll be it. It wasn't helpful. It's unhelpful. It's unhelpful. But, you know, we want to— we want to cut Medicare and reform and Social Security and, and Medicaid, therefore it will be worth it. Right. Um, you know, what we need is we need more people in this country who, like in the British system, when somebody does something wrong, they just resign, you know, and um, it doesn't always work. Sometimes uh, they resign over literally nothing. I know. <laughs> for example, Case in for example, Lord Michael Bates yesterday was just late. He was late for a session of parliament, and he was so embarrassed that he offered his resignation. Here he is. I'm thoroughly ashamed at not being in my place, and therefore I should be offering my resignation to the Prime Minister. <laughs> oh, did they, did they accept it, Peter? Uh, his, I don't think they... they, they uh, off, I, I don't think they accepted his resignation. The fact that he offered... Did they accept... Did they take his resignation? Theresa May uh, would not accept his oh, resignation. Oh, there it is. Okay. But right. like, um, like of all the things, right? Like, right. just thinking of all the mm-hmm. breaks of decorum in the United States <laughs> Congress, right? Like yeah. Joe Wilson screaming "You lie" while Barack Obama was during an address, or you know, the horrible things that get said. Mm. Mm. Nobody bats an eye. Mm. Like it's nothing. No. Or and the guy was late. <laughs> the guy was late, <laughs> and he tried to resign for it. It's remarkable. Or cabinet members here, the president will publicly humiliate, right? You think about Rex Tillerson and Jeff Sessions? Yeah, yeah. If Jeff Sessions had any self-respect, he would have resigned a long time ago and just said, I'm not going to take that kind of crap from this guy, right? right. There were stories of Jeff Sessions crying when Donald Trump laid into him over, I think it was his recusal of the, uh, over oh, the Russia yeah, stuff. Yeah. And Donald Trump was just like, why did you do that? It just was unrelenting and jefferson sessions started crying uh, and he's still here like he's still here Beauregard. jefferson Bol- I mean, rex Tillerson effectively Beauregard. rex Tillerson effectively has no influence despite being the country's top diplomat because every time he says something the president undermines yeah. it seconds later so yeah rex Tillerson. 
he we, have to have, feel... we have to move toward talks with North Korea and the, the friend. And, um, the, no, we're not going to talk to that SOB. How does right? it feel to know that your existence is completely meaningless? That's my question for Rex Tillerson. Like, they don't even want him in the job. They don't believe in the, in the Department of State. And like you said, every time he says something, he gets contradicted by his boss. Yeah, but. He's been there long enough. Uh, actually, he's been there long enough now that his tax benefits right. kick in. So therefore, um, um, he he might as well leave now. Sure. Yeah, he can he can take advantage of this tax benefit. So, uh, Sabrina, I haven't seen you since the State of the Union. Um, mm. uh, Jen Bendery again from HuffPost, who covers Congress for HuffPost, will be joining us soon. But uh, before we uh, take a break here, um, it was. What would you say the uh, most meaningful uh, State of the Union you ever saw? Or... <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think that the the truth is we, we know that, yes, the president is capable of reading from a script. Um, but to me, the nationalist undertones uh, of his portion on immigration are profound and have such serious implications for the direction of this country for for its future as one that um, has historically been accepting of immigrants and it's it's people just dismiss it as him uh, effectively touting his immigration agenda and 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 asking Congress to to hash out a deal, uh, but when you use the platform of the presidency to continue to elevate crimes committed by immigrants. It is so clearly a dog whistle, and it defies all the studies that show that immigrants are much Absolutely. less likely to commit crimes than native-born, and that has remained there, the truth as immigration there, there rates have gone no up. There is no data at all to make the link that he does between immigration and crime. But this fear-mongering around MS-13, everyone knows what he was trying to do, and it is effectively to criminalize immigrants. So the notion that this is the president who's going to achieve a meaningful deal on immigration um the question would be at what cost at the cost of of suggesting that all immigrants or brown-skinned immigrants are criminals and that's why democrats and immigration advocates um have no reason to trust that he's serious about dreamers um or about any meaningful immigration reform what is what was your read of the phrase well, Americans are dreamers too. It's all all lives matter DACA recipients. I mean, that's what that's what people say about when when people with with this whole conversation on criminal justice and Black Lives Matter, you have opponents of the movement say, "Well, all lives matter." That that's effectively what he did. Americans are dreamers too. Is just the is this a complete way of dis- dismissing and putting down the and dreamers. putting down yeah. the dreamers? It, it just it, it dismisses their plight as as not being as unique as it is, which is that they were brought here as children through no yeah. crime of their own. They are effectively Americans, but they're living here, um, you know, with with, with the constant fear of deportation, especially yeah. now because he's 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 the one who has renewed the threat of deportation. Um, and and so, they're kids. So to, to 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 take these kids and say, well, yeah, well, it, you know, Americans are dreamers too. Is saying that I view right. I view Americans as being being worthy of protection, and that's my priority, not not you. Yeah. Now it might be like a white supremacist, right? Who said, well, yeah, I'm guilty of discrimination too, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The difference between 
other Americans being having a, a dream and the dreamers is those other Americans are, are not at risk of being they're U.S. De- citizens. They're U.S. <laughs> citizens, and they're not at risk of being deported. Exactly. You know, any day, any moment, well, are ripped apart from their family. Be, or their their life, but it here also creates a false choice, as just if because as their if parents brought them as here. if extending protections to dreamers is in some way going to undermine Americans. Yeah, when in fact, yeah, dreamers are yeah. already contributing to American society, whether it's you know through the work, whether it's working, or whether it's you know the, what they bring uh, to schools where they study, um, and just as members of the community. It, 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 in addition to what we just said, um, it, it it implies in some way that you are somehow undermining. Americans by extending a hand to dreamers. Right. So the big question is, will anything result from the State of the Union Tuesday night, or uh, will it be seen, as I tend to see it, as totally meaningless? Jen Bendery covers the Congress for HuffPost. Uh, She'll join us next uh, with Sabrina Siddiqui here on the Bill Press Show. Uh, What trouble we can get into together. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. First day of February. Can you believe it? Here we are, The Bill Press Show, with all of you uh, all across this great land of ours, joining you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where we're brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers uh, Union, the UFCW, uh, a proud union family. Uh, they're the ones who... Uh, make up the workforce in all of our great retail grocery chains all across the country. Uh, That proud union family serving, feeding, serving, and providing for America's hardworking families under the leadership of President Mark Perrone. Check out their website at ufcw.org. On this first day of February, Sabrina Siddiqui here uh, for the entire hour as a friend of Bill, and we are joined by a friend of all of ours, Jen Bendery from HuffPost. Hello, Jen. Hi, Bill. Great to see you. <laughs> you too. Yeah. Did you have a good seat for the State of the Union? I did. I was uh, very close to the television set in my office. I was going to oh. ask if, if you were on your couch with like a was, glass of wine. <laughs> no, I was not that far gone, but uh, I was at my office this year. I got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what we haven't talked about at all? Let's just get one comment from each of you about, if you watched, uh, young Mr. Kennedy. I did. And? I think that his speech was very well written. I think that it it was it kind of s- s- touched on all the themes um, with respect to the way that the country has changed uh, and the identity of the country is at stake uh, under the new administration. It, it obviously well, the goal was to strike this m- note of inclusiveness. Um, so so I think that it, there are many people who felt like it was kind of going back to this hopeful more inspirational message that sort of reminiscent of the way that Obama used to speak. I think his delivery could use a little bit of work. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I wasn't like blown away. Yeah. Um, but then again, um, you know, I mean, there there was, it, I think it was, it was notable that they also had, you know, the first Latina elected to the Virginia house uh, of delegates give an, a, a, a separate response and then they also, and then Bernie was also giving a response. So it's quite clear that they wanted to have like a different array yeah. of voices. Did you, uh, did you watch? I did watch. Yeah. I thought it was pretty generic. I thought he hit on all the issues that Democrats want to hit on, which is the whole point of the the pre or the rebuttal. But um, I thought it was kind of boring. 
I mean, they're trying to showcase a Kennedy. Yeah, I get it. He hit on all the, you know, the topics that, that Democrats want to highlight. It was optimistic. That's fine. But it was boring. And he also had chapstick on. The corners of his mouth. And, and we were all pretty distracted by that. We're like, why is why are the corners of his it mouth was, It was like the Marco Water thing. Yeah. Like all that everyone could talk about was not the speech itself. It, but like this little distraction. Uh, and I don't even think that like, I don't think Read he's actually. my lips. The, um, he's not even. He's not even like, to my knowledge, like interested in running in 2020. He wants to seek the Senate at some point first. So, that was at least what the suggestion. Well, has I would been. hope. Uh, he's yeah. only 37. Yeah. I mean, look. Like, first of all, I'm happy that a guy with the last name Kennedy finally caught a break uh, and was able to give this rebuttal. Yeah, yeah. I will say, I, I agree with. I, I agree that it was underwhelming. But you know what I did like were the optics of actually not like giving it in front of a crowd, like on a stage, and not being just in front of a camera mm-hmm. by yourself, right? Like I think so many people have gotten stuck in bad situations that way. But like actually having some life to it, like some people in the room. At a vocational high school, I thought was a, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I like because, that. I'd like to see more of that. Donald Trump even said we need to. Like I think maybe he knew where Kennedy was going to give his talk because yeah. we need more vocational high schools, but. Did someone um, say vocational? <laughs> I have to tell you, if I um, were asked to give the rebuttal to a state of this union, I would turn it down. It, it is, it, it's a kiss Cursed. of death. It's I don't a think curse. it's an it's opportunity to really shine, though. Yeah, no, that's why I was I, like, it's fine. I mean, he Christy gave... Whitman, I remember that one. Marco Rubio. Um, but I don't remember what he even Bobby said. Jindal. I think the only one I can remember that I really liked was Jim Webb. You remember when he gave mm. his? People were talking about it. It was before his no, descent into. It was yeah. before he was a senator, yeah. right? Or when, maybe uh, right when he became mm. a senator. And mm. he, I remember that. Yeah. He, yeah. You do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he Vaguely. refused. Uh, if I remember it right, he refused to to say the speech that the party wanted to give him, and he ripped it up. And he wrote his own. Huh. And then he was sitting like at a desk, which looked like he was at home or in an office. And then he pulled up a picture of his dad and like held it in front of the camera, and it, it felt like. Just it felt authentic, and he had some real like attitude in it. Yeah. Jim Webb was like a real deal candidate for Democrats before he ran for president and stood on stage and said he killed right. a guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like before that, he was like a real deal. Like Democrats were in love with Jim Webb. Mm-hmm. All right, so Jen, let's talk about this speech itself. And the big question is, I mean, to, I I I went back and reread the, the perfect nerd here. Uh, the February 28, 2017 speech to look to see what out of that speech actually happened. Nothing. So when you look at this speech Tuesday night, what out of that speech, you know the Congress better than anybody, is going to actually happen? Well, what did he say would happen this time? He said he, he said, talked about uh, infrastructure. But he said, yeah. And he talked about but, but, some... Oh, okay. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, just go, let, let's start with infrastructure because... Okay. I thought it was very uh, um, instructive that the verb he used was, my plan will generate $1.5 trillion in infrastructure spending, whereas his budget includes $200 billion. And all the rest of it is going to come from where? States spend it or big companies. Mm -hmm. So he's counting on them to build projects that they can make a lot of money. Which is not what... Democrats signed up for when they said they would work with him on a, a big infrastructure bill. They want investment from the government, which is the whole point, because then you can go to small towns that don't have 
big companies there that are willing to invest. They, they don't have these large exactly. corporations there ready to throw money around. So then what kind of communities benefit from what the president seems to be proposing? It's it's places where corporate America, yeah, corporate <laughs> places that have giant corporate right. um, bases that will throw yeah. money at things. Yeah. So that's not going to help. No. communities Who, that could really use it. And they will build either roads or sewer plant, whatever, that not the necessarily the ones that we need, right? They'll build the ones that they think they can money. So so Sabrina, nothing happened after the promise of a trillion dollars in 2017. What are the chances a trillion and a half is going to happen in 2018? Zero? Like, <laughs> the thing is that when you talk about the private funding of, of an infrastructure proposal, that is... The condition that was laid out by Paul Ryan, and so you see that the White House, for all of the so-called populism that people said Trump campaigned on, uh, they've pretty much acquiesced to letting Republicans steer the ship in terms of legislation that's actually being crafted. You saw that with the tax bill. Yeah. You saw it with yeah. the failed efforts right. to replace the health care law. Right. So I think it'll so, really much be driven by Republicans and effectively be a non-starter with Democrats. All right. So we it. started on in- infrastructure. Uh, another issue he talked about. Well, the big one is DACA and immigration, and that was sort of the the core of the president's you know proposals for what should get done. And he laid out his four pillars for what needs to be in a deal. But at this moment, the the plans for saving DACA do not look great because people people aren't willing to just make the focus of the of this whole deal preserving DACA. They're throwing all these other things into the into the deal that involve border security and the wall and um, basically, changing, it, slashing legal immigration. Yeah, I mean, think of everything you could propose yes. that Democrats would hate and that people who are immigrants would be hurt by. Throw all of that into a, a quote-unquote deal, and then add on top that we'll we'll preserve DACA. That's that's what it's looking like, which is not really a deal. It's just everything that they can think of to screw over immigrants in some form will be put in there. With the the you know the bait being that DACA walls calling be them murderer, or equating each one of them as a murderer, or rapist, or some yeah, kind of know, a criminal say, uh, along the way. The, one of the the most disgusting things of of the way that President Trump has done these State of the Unions is the way that he he trots in people mm-hmm. and uses the, like regular people and uses them as examples of why immigrants are bad. And so they have you know like grieving families who have suffered a, like a real tragedy. Uh, sitting in the balcony when while Trump talks about how, you know, one of their children was killed by an, an undocumented person. Therefore, we need to really crack down on all these undocumented people. It is so disgusting. It is so just just base. It's trying it's to preying on and it's preying on these people who are who are, are consumed by grief. And so, you know, you you can't, uh, whatever these families, every family will respond differently if they've, they've lost a child. And I mean, you're, you're preying on, on them just just having no word, no real way to express their loss. And so, you know, any any sensible administration would not prey on that and use it to their own gain. Although, ironically, those two girl teenagers uh, from New York uh, whose fam- parents were in the audience, one of those mothers was interviewed by the New York Times and said that her daughter's death to her is not an immigration issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that doesn't matter so, to Trump. He's that, just right. them Trump, in. But that's what no, he no. turned it into. And using uh, their I story said, to bolster I, I, his, I said his racist I am, anti-immigration policies. Every one of those people, they were, they're were they great people, great Americans, they have great stories. I am up to here with that gallery. Talk. I mean, it, it, it's like almost Donald Trump said, I know you hate me, but, you know, um, 
So don't pay any attention to me. I just want to talk about these people. If it weren't for them, 45 minutes of his speech, I think, was all devoted to those little stories. Well, that's the only way you can get applause. Exactly. Exactly. You know, to me, it's like the White House Correspondents' Dinner. They ruined it when they started inviting all the celebrities because now it's all about the celebrities. And the State of the Union is all about the people that he can prey on, exploit, take advantage of. You know, and to and, get applause, and at the same it's time, disgust- you've got it in, is disgusting. It's this one in particular. Well, the, both of his his joint address last year, he did the same thing. Yeah. And it was disgusting. Um, and I got to say, you know, I know members of Congress bring guests and have increasingly been using their guests to make a political statement, and I understand why they do that. Fine, but I have to say that uh, did you see who Senator Kennedy brought as his guest this year? The Republican oh, senator that was, from that Louisiana. Was really good. He brought he brought the Senate custodian. Oh, really? The guy who cleans up after all these senators, and he's been in the job for years. Good for him. He brought him as Good his guest and said that yeah. he met him on the job and that they connected talking about some volunteer work they've done. And he decided that he should bring him so he could actually be on the front front rows of the kinds yeah. of yeah. events that he's right. cleaning up after. And that was, that, that's so nice. That's it, classy. Yeah. That really is. Uh, uh, surprisingly classy for John Kennedy. But because I don't have that high opinion of him as a senator from Louisiana, but that was a classy thing to do. But by the way, there's another difference, of course, is uh, those members of Congress and their guests, and I know, like, I forget now, Mark Pocan, Peter, he told us who he's brought as his guest. But um, the, the, the guests that they bring, they don't introduce each one. They don't, you know, in front of the entire crowd, they don't, they, they don't they tell this whole story. They usually put out a press release telling us yes. who they're bringing as a guest. And other than that, they don't get any media attention. And that's you know, a- To me, I think the thing that, that was – you mentioned this last year he did this. There was that whole sort of scandal about the uh, the botched mission where, like, some Marines died. And he had oh. the widow of one of those yeah. guys oh, there. Right. And that <laughs> was the moment that Van Jones uh. and oh, other yeah. people yeah. sort of pointed to and said – He's become president. This is the moment that he mm-hmm. became president. And it's like it was a white of the grotesque. Navy seal. It and was grotesque. Like it it gave him cover to hide behind dead American soldiers. So I was actually gonna say and get the applause and the praise of the American media and members of Congress. It was no the, thanks. It was the widow of the, the Navy SEAL in the joint address to Congress. And actually when we were talking about this, I was gonna say, I feel like they they saw how that was received and then ran with it this year and were like, let's have like 10 moments yeah. like the Navy, yep. the widow of the right, Navy right. SEAL. Yeah. And that's like, that's what the speech is going to be about because and, then he'll seem presidential and all the and pundits and talking heads will declare that he is now presidential. Even uh, though literally two weeks ago he yeah. called a bunch of like African and uh, Latin American country shitholes. Uh, but also, um, the, um, <laughs> uh, every one of those stories or he had nothing to do with any one of those stories or any one of the what happened to those people. Nothing, nothing. Let's take the opioid crisis. Everybody said the most touching moment might have been the woman there holding the little baby that, that, the, that the police officer. What a great story. What a great family to do that, right? Donald Trump has done zip about the opioid crisis. Nothing. He's had meetings. He hasn't even did he ever declared a crisis? I mean, for a long while, he wouldn't even use that word. Yeah, he signed. Didn't he sign something saying making it a national? 
like yeah, but basically a public disaster. Like an emergency. Maybe. Yeah, public emergency. Yeah, emergency. yeah, but it was a long time coming. But and nothing still, came of it. There's no, nothing and came of it. And then the people who on that opioid commission said that they've been disappointed because they haven't actually yeah. seen any any right. policy from this White House. Well, and if you get down to it, you have to look at what kind of money he's willing to throw at this. And guess what? He's proposing cutting programs that address opioid addiction. So, I mean, that the, his whole opioid, opioid talk was very hollow. And also, yeah. in the case of that family that you mentioned, it, you're right. I mean, it was what a, what an amazing story. They adopted this baby yeah. from a, a woman and who they was had four kids already. Yeah, they had four kids. They, they adopted this woman's baby who was, you know, about to use heroin, and yeah. you know, clearly she needed help. But then, amazing story. But what happened to the woman? I had that same thought. I, oh, I mean, I we're talking about saving thought. the baby from the woman yeah, who was suffering yeah. from addiction. Good but point. then they never we never know what you know, what happened to the the actual yeah. heroin addict. Is there right. concern for you know, she represents many Americans and, and what are you doing as president to highlight what you're doing to help people like her? And mm-hmm. that was completely absent from that story. But meanwhile, uh, and Sabrina and I talked about this the last half hour, Jen, there is an open warfare between um, Donald Trump and the director of the FBI, his director, the man he appointed to replace James Comey, Christopher Wray. And there's an open warfare uh, in the House, your territory, between uh, Republicans and Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee. Um, Jen's a big fan of Devin Nunes. (laughs) Really? (laughs) We outed him once at HuffPost. He like talked. He like he tried to lie about the response he gave me in in the government shutdown of 2013, and Jen, and I had recorded it. And Jen, you and I together, all right, released the audio, and we're like, well, don't don't <laughs> wh- wh- why why are you why are you like trying to like you know discredit me and my reporting? I have you on tape, but like his his credibility issues go way back. I just oh, thought yeah. of this while sitting yeah. here with you. Well, no, okay, let's go. Also, let's go last year. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, there you go. Yeah. But we hadn't forgotten about last year when he did this whole little song and dance with the White House and all this top secret information. And he and he, he got caught in a, in a phony, like, little trick, media trick, right? And, and had to recuse himself from the investigation. And now we're supposed to believe anything he puts in this memo? Well, and then, you know, and Adam Schiff, who's the Democrat on the committee, has really shined, I would say, through this. He's very... Yeah. Sticks to the facts. He's very focused and very, you know, no, no frills. Mm-hmm. He's like just says it like it is all the time, and he's he's been outraged lately. When that guy is rattled, you know something's bad because he's so he's calm like dignified. And, he's and, very and, and very focused, and he's and, a lawyer, and he can yeah. talk very clearly about what's going on. But he's the one who put out a, a I think a statement last night saying, mm. yeah, uh, we were told there were no changes made to this memo that is potentially about to be outed and. There were changes. He they basically material uh, changes. Material changes made to this very sensitive document that the president might just release, just because, essentially saying that that Devin Nunes lied to him, mm-hmm. and other Democrats on the committee are now saying the same thing, like they lied to us. So this whole thing is such a mess, and it doesn't reflect and, well. It no. comes back to Nunes. And once again, again, remember before Nunes, who announces that I found this top secret stuff. Damaging stuff I'm going to go down and tell the White House about. They have to know about this. Well, it turns out he was given this stuff by the White House, and then he was pretending this. So now they, he was when he was asked, this time around now, with all this damaging stuff you have in this memo, did the White House have anything to do with drafting that memo? He won't answer the question. What does that tell you? Of course they did, right? I mean, his credibility has really gone out the window. It has been for a while, so I don't really know at what point— is I don't know. 
how when how does he get to continue being okay. this pivotal person in this when his credibility has been so destroyed? Of course, they say right. We want this memo out there because we believe in transparency. Okay, if they believe in transparency, why won't they release Adam Schiff's ten-page rebuttal to the Devin Nunez memo? Well, and that's the politics of it. But then, why would they also release a document that the actual intelligence officials at the very top levels are saying not to do it? I mean, never mind the the partisan part of this, but the safety and security aspect of this is they're so intent on just saying they've released something that they're blowing past the nation's leaders and intelligence who are warning them repeatedly not to do it. Well, what is that? Well, we know that's what that very is. Very alarming. That, that is, as Sabrina pointed out earlier. That's that's just part of the effort to discredit Robert Mueller, and they're so in they're so focused on that and so determined in that effort that national security is the secondary concern, right? Do you, so do you think Remember that? Remember the days when Republicans were the party of national security and, <laughs> and law and order and law and order. Remember uh, the days when people were outraged because President Obama wore a tan suit. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Things have changed. Things have changed. Um, will Adam Schiff, if if the White House releases the Devin Nunez memo, will Adam release his rebuttal on his own? The committee won't. What do you think? Um, I think he might. I think he would if it gets to that point. And I think he would argue it's in the name of of security and safety that okay, if you're going to drop this bomb that is like a. a very sensitive document that could put people at, at harm or, you know, reveal things that, you know, endanger people's lives. I'm going to go ahead and put out my document that counters that because it's it's the safest, most responsible thing to do. I think I could I could see him doing it. Sabrina? I think so, because at this point, I think everyone feels the need to defend <laughs> and uphold the integrity of the investigation. Um, those, I mean, who believe that this campaign to discredit the special counsel and now the FBI in a much broader sense um, is has a profound consequences, not just for how the issue, the Russia investigation plays out, but for the remainder of the Trump presidency and beyond. I mean, if you're going to taint the entire reputation of the FBI, um, I think you're going to be in uncharted territory where even people who like Adam Schiff, who, who are a little less overt in the way that they deal with some of these, the political fallout will feel compelled to, to take a much more public stand. Yeah. So um, shifting gears here just a little bit, I remember, I remember when they used to call 19, they did call 1992, the year of the woman. <laughs> and I was state chair in California at the time, Democratic chair, and we had Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer both running, both elected. That ain't nothing compared to this year, right, Jen, in terms of the year of the woman candidates? Yeah, it's like a tidal wave of, of women running, and they're winning. And it's not just at, at the congressional or Senate levels. It's happening at the local and state levels, which is arguably more important because this is maybe the first time in a while where Democrats are actually setting the the foundation for a, a Building a, a bench, as they say. Building right? a bench of, yeah. of uh, solid Democratic candidates from the ground up who can go on to then run for Congress or run for Senate. Because they have the background and they've been running local things for a while and they've been state legislators for a while and they haven't had that in the party because they haven't really focused on the state and local levels. And so it's a pretty amazing grassroots driven movement that's just exploding. And it has ever since Trump became president. It's yeah. amazing. Right. 
uh, started with the Women's March here in Washington. I well, it started on November eighth. I mean, when when Trump won, yeah, there were right, people right. who were just beside themselves and not knowing what to do. And the the natural inclination for some was just, I think I need to get into public service for the first time. Uh, and it could really, it, it, it you're right. It's city council, it's school board, you know, state legislature, and then also Congress and Senate could really change the nature of this Congress, Sabrina. Oh, absolutely. And we've seen time and again that the women have often been the more sensible uh, members of Congress who are willing to actually talk to each other. And um, I, mean, I still recall uh, the 2013 government shutdown when it was the women in the Senate who got together and said enough is enough. You know, mm-hmm. surely there has to be a way to break this impasse. Um, and then you also look at the assault sure. on reproductive rights and women's economic issues because so yeah. many of these decisions are being made by men. Um so having more women at the table is the, is the response, the natural response. It is to that. true that I hadn't thought about that. The women, like in the Senate, are much more collegial. Oh yeah, than the men I mean, in the Senate. Think about when the uh, Obamacare repeal yeah. bill finally went mm-hmm. down in like what July. Who who killed it? Lisa Susan, Murkowski. I mean, John and McCain Susan gets a lot of the credit because he walked in and gave right. this big dramatic thumbs down. But it was actually Susan Collins and who Lisa said from Murkowski. the beginning she yeah. was a no, and Lisa Murkowski who was the yeah. surprise no. And that wraps it for today. Jen Bendry, Huff Post, and Sabrina Siddiqui, Guardian. Thank you both. Bill thank, thank you. Show.